Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and if you've not heard this podcast before, let me explain it to you. My guests tell me the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They could pick anything at all from any time in their life. They pick four things that they treasure and would like to have again and preserve in a time capsule, and one thing that they rather regret from their life, something they'd like to wipe from the slate or bury in the ground and never have to think about again. And doing that in this episode, episode 132, is the chaser they usually call the governess, Anne Hegarty, famous for her displays of quiz knowledge on the ITV show The Chase, hosted by Bradley Walsh. Anne has been on a number of quiz shows over the years as a contestant, such as Mastermind, 15 to 1, Today's the Day, Are You an Egghead, and Brain of Britain. She was a phone a friend on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, where, obviously, she knew who wrote the Twilight books. I can't quite recall who it was myself, but never mind. Uh, she's also been a guest panellist on the radio programme, Sorry I Haven't a Clue. She's not only on The Chase in England, but she's also a regular on The Chase Australia. And Britain's Brightest Family beat The Chaser, and she was also a contestant on I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here in 2018. Her latest project was The Chaser Road Trip Series, Trains, Brains and Automobiles. So... Please pay attention and sit up straight, because here is the governess, the delightful Anne Hegarty.
And it's really lovely of you to do this. So sweet of you. Okay. We're just going to talk about five things that you've chosen mm -hmm. that you want to put into a time capsule. I hope they're the right sort of things because they're rather sort of woolly things. And you may need an enormous time capsule. <laughs> they're, they're sort of more concepts than things. Well, I quite like that. I quite like the quandary of how do we make this work. Mm. But so far, I've managed to put nearly everything I want to put into a time capsule. I've managed to get them all in. I managed to get the United States of America in for Craig Ferguson. Oh, well, excellent. So if we can do that, I think we can deal with concepts. Oh, right. Okay. I tend to think a concept won't take up much space. Yeah, I don't think I've got anything as big as the United States to go with. <laughs> All right. Okay, well, let's find out what they are. So what's your first item? Uh, my first item is uh, a school. It's Sherridswood School which is where I went for five years. Mm -hmm. And in those days, it was two buildings. Um, it's really only one building now, so you probably could get it into your time capsule quite readily. Okay, yes. Where is it? The original senior school that I was at was Welling Garden City. The boarding uh -huh. house was about two miles away in Old Welling. Uh, and now it's just the boarding house. The old school has now been turned into flats. Mm. And uh, the boarding house um, is, is still there, standing in uh, 57 acres of grounds. Wow. With a little river running through it called the Mimram. The house used to be owned by sort of a succession of posh families, one of whom knew the tightrope walker Blondin. Who did those extraordinary walks between buildings in, in the United States? Uh, now, that were, I, I, I think that? you're thinking of someone later, the man on wire. Ah, uh, yes. Um, Blondin was earlier. He was uh, sort of late 19th century. And he walked across Niagara Falls. And he used to practice uh, over the Mimram which is a really very small little river <laughs> and uh, has sort of, you know, the occasional very small weir that's about sort of three feet or something like that. And he used to practice his tightrope walks over there. But, um, <laughs> not that you saw that, Anne. Well, no, I'm not quite that old, <laughs> funnily enough. <laughs> um, but there are sort of various interesting trees. Uh, the first time I ever saw an actual sweet chestnut tree was at school. Uh, and copper beaches, which were rarer in those days than they are now. Mm. And uh, something called a tulip tree that I was told had provided the wood for the front staircase. Because, like I say, um, before it was a school, it was an old sort of very small stately home. Mm. And it had one of those sort of sweeping wooden staircases that apparently was entirely made out of tulip wood and was worth about... In the 1970s, it had been estimated about a quarter of a million quid, which is an awful lot of money in those days. My God. We weren't allowed to use it. On Saturday mornings, we all had to do a bit of housework, uh, and I used to quite enjoy polishing the staircase. Mm. So did you board there? I did. Um, I, uh, In my early teens, um, people didn't actually know what autism was in those days, um, but I was sort of starting to... Um, you know, it was becoming quite obvious that I was really struggling with the world generally. Mm. And uh, my mother, being a psychiatric social worker, she knew that there were funds set aside for um, special needs education. And I mean, nobody knew what my special needs were, but they were fairly sure I must have some. So they managed to um, have me sent to a boarding school. And after the initial shock, which probably lasted about a year, mm. um, I was sort of like, yeah, OK, this, this kind of actually all makes sense. Uh, and I learned a lot of sort of basic social skills. You kind of have to learn in those circumstances. Otherwise, people are just going to keep sticking your head down the loo and flushing it until you get a clue. 
I picked up on a lot of stuff quite quickly. It's a cruel um, way to learn, though, isn't it? That's quite well. A- yeah, okay, not quite like that. No. Um, yeah, but the thing is, there were certain things that I just simply did need to learn, and uh, nobody had any other way of, of getting me to understand things like that. Yes. I still didn't know how to tie my shoelaces. I didn't learn how to tie my shoelaces until after I graduated from university. Mm. So, I mean, it is literally true. I, I got my master's degree before I learned to tie my shoelaces, <laughs> uh, which is really quite sort of typically absent-minded professor stroke autistic person thing. Yeah. Now, my grandson has autism. So I'm watching this process at the moment, mm-hmm. exactly what you're describing, which is fascinating because there are certain things that work extremely well for him and mm-hmm. other things that he just can't cope with. And you, that doesn't depend on the complication of the thing. Yeah. It depends on the thing itself. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. uh, for example, he, I mean, I'm sure you were the same. He'd love to know what was coming next, the order of things. Mm. One thing I did in primary school, because I realised that my primary school wasn't going to be any use in teaching me this, was learning a list of all the English monarchs from the conquest onwards and their dates. My grandson has just done that. Excellent. If I'm having difficulty sleeping, I still, you know, repeat those to myself. And more recently, American presidents. I'm going to send you a present. I went to Heaver Castle yesterday. Oh, yeah. And I noticed a 12-inch ruler (laughs) with all the rulers on the back. Oh, excellent. Yes. Oh, brilliant. I'm definitely going to send that to you. Oh, splendid. Thank you very much. (laughs) So after a year of getting yourself used to this thing, you were very happy there, were you, at the school? I pretty much was, yes. I I sort of felt quite, you know, okay, I understand this. And it was also a way of getting a lot more structure in my life than I had been. You know, I knew what time we got up, what we did. Um, You had a wash, you got dressed, you went to breakfast, then you came back, then you made your bed. Then you went down to the front and you waited for the coach to pick you up. You got on the coach and you went to school and you had a timetable and it was actually dependable because my life at home sort of wasn't terribly dependable. And there was just this general assumption that nothing was ever going to work properly and nothing was ever going to sort of, um, you were not, I mean, whenever we tried to catch a train with my mother, there was always this uncertainty about where the train was and if this was the right train and asking several people just to be sure. Mm. Uh, and it was just nice that at school, you just simply consulted this thing and said, right, I'm sorry, it's, I've got double French now in that room. And in fact, you went there and there was the right room and you did in fact have double French. Mm. You could depend on it. Yes, it's a very interesting thing, isn't it? That uh, needing to depend on things that actually <laughs> very simple changes in the order of things can really set off something in, in an autistic brain, mm. almost a panic. Yeah, I still, I really, really struggle with interruptions. I mean, last Thursday, I was trying to deal with things and just getting message after message. Um, most of them sort of on the same sort of subject, but just, oh, what now? And just thinking, you know, I wish I could just work through all of this stuff in my own time instead of getting messages like, can I phone you? Okay, yes, fine, you can phone me. And then it turns out to be about something that honestly could have waited, could have been in writing, but no, somebody felt the need to talk. (laughs) That need to do things absolutely now, which is uh, the way the world is driven at the moment, yeah. yeah. So how long were you at that school? If it was a boarding school, were you right the way through to... Yes, I was there for five years. I went there when I was 13 after two years at uh, the local comprehensive where um, it was obvious I everything about me was just sort of grinding to a halt. Mm. Uh, and it was like I really did not know how to do anything. I didn't understand anything. 
so I was there from the age of 13 until um, I got my A-levels when I was uh, 18. Mm. It was a small school. It was a private school. It was never big enough to be a headmaster's conference school, so it wasn't a public school. Mm. And it wasn't sort of madly posh. You know, they were farmers' kids because in the 70s, farmers had quite a lot of money. But uh, I don't think it was madly expensive. No. It just sort of calmed me down and it got me actually sort of learning things uh, and working out how things worked. Mm. And the education in particular, both the headmaster and his wife were experts on languages. And I liked languages. So, uh, you know, I was already doing okay in French and I learned German. And then when I got into the sixth form, I was like, well, you know, it's obvious I'm kind of going to specialize on the language side. It feels to me like I could use some Latin. Could someone teach me Latin? So the headmaster's wife sat down and did a timetable that would enable me to have Latin lessons. And what I didn't realize was that um, she was putting us in for the O-level at the end of the year. So in a year from scratch... I did Latin O-level and I actually got the highest grade. (laughs) I really liked Latin. I liked how you could get a sentence completely right. It was just enormously satisfying. Oh, that's interesting. So the vagaries of language then can slightly annoy you. Is that right? Well, yeah, in a sense. I mean, uh, I I was always pretty good at French. Um, I got French A-level. But just this feeling of, you know, there are so many ways one might put this. But with Latin, it was sort of right. Have you got the right declension? Have you got the right ending? Is that in the right group? Um, Have you got the verb at the end, which is probably where it belongs? You know, all of that is correct. It was like doing Esperanto. (laughs) But my father was into Esperanto when I was a child. So I kept on sort of picking up bits of Esperanto. I actually always found Esperanto difficult to learn precisely because it is so regular. And it's it's just sort of too smooth. Uh, Your brain slides off it. There's nothing to get hold of. Mm. There aren't any there's sort of really interesting irregular verbs like there are in Latin, like um, ferro ferro tu le latum, which makes absolutely no sense at all. Um, and because it makes no sense, you know, you remember it for years. But there's nothing like that in Esperanto. It all makes so much sense that you just sort of can't really remember it. Uh, that's a very good way of looking at it. Perhaps that's why it never caught on. Could well be, mm. yeah. So do you think, had you stayed on at that comprehensive school, that actually you would have just got into your shell, really, and never... I mean, it's difficult to know what would have happened to you. Someone needed to um, just kind of break through to me. I think there were an awful lot of things as a child that it took me a very long time to understand, like sort of the concept of incremental improvement. You know, just sit down and do this. Just sit and practice this. I mean, I had piano lessons as a kid, but I don't think I ever had the concept of, you know, if you play these scales for half an hour, you may find you're getting more fluent. Mm -hmm. And if you do it tomorrow, you may find that you've remembered that fluency. And all this stuff that kind of seems obvious now, but it didn't mean anything to me as a child. I couldn't perceive it happening and I couldn't imagine it happening. One of the things people say about autism is um, one of the components of autism is a failure of imagination. And the thing is, we tend to be tremendously imaginative about all sorts of things, you know, in our imaginations. But what we're not good at is imagining outcomes. And we're not good at saying, if I do this and this and this, this is how long it will take me. And this will be the result. And this is how I will benefit from it. And I just kind of needed someone to to 
I don't know, just make me, I don't know if anyone ever did make me understand that at school, but at least I understood if I didn't do my homework, I was in trouble. <laughs> so I learned, you know, okay, it was all stick and no carrot, but I mean, at least I learned, okay, you are required to do this. Here is the time that has been set out for you to do it. There is going to be a room full of people, all of them sitting there silently doing their own homework. And there will be somebody at the front to make sure that nobody is being annoying. And, you know, you have like an hour or an hour and a half in which to do this every night and we're going to make you do it. Yes. So, you know, that that was good for me in a way. Most children, when they have the threat of you'll be in trouble if you don't do this, they worry about the threat and that inhibits them slightly. I see that with my grandson, that if you say, well, you have to do what you're told at school because there are rules. So he's really obsessed with getting the rules right, behaving the way that he's told. Yes. Well, I can remember this uh, when I was a child in primary school. I can remember that whenever the teacher had to leave the room, she would say to everyone, that now you have to be quiet until I come back. And she'd leave the room and I would hear the noise level kind of slowly rise and rise and rise and rise until she came back in and suddenly it went right back down again. And I'd think to myself, I don't understand this. She said to them that they had to be quiet. What part of that don't they understand? Mm. You know, why, why did they do that? You know, it didn't make any sense to me. I think, I mean, I've read a lot about it now because of my grandson. And you see all over the place, Microsoft and Apple and all these people, the whole company is staffed with people with one form of autism or another because they think in a different way. And that creates innovation. Yes, I've heard it suggested that the sort of people who, in the middle of the 19th century, got into wagon trains in St. Louis and set off west and settled in the far west and the northwest and places that later turned out to be, you know, Seattle and so on, quite often they have the sort of minds that mean either that they're going to found Microsoft or that they're going to found Boeing you know, two Northwestern industries full of intelligent people who work really well on their own. Mm -hmm. You know, these are the people they picked to build rockets later on. And yeah, all a little bit autistic. I mm. Well, thank goodness for that. That's all I can say. Yeah. Okay, so what was the name of the school again? I've forgotten it, sorry. It's called Sherrodswood. It still exists, but it's not a boarding school anymore. They've moved the school into the boarding house. Okay, well, we're going to put it in there, if only to protect that staircase. Absolutely. I don't want anybody going around now having heard this <laughs> and, and one night with a crowbar. I went back there for a school reunion about um, two years ago. Staircase is still there. Lovely. All right. Well, that goes in with the school right. into the time capsule as your first item, Anne. Okay, right. Let's move on to your second item. My second item is um, South Wales. It's smaller than the United States, so I think you can fit it in there. Yeah. Um, I did my postgraduate course. Um, I went to the journalism school at uh, the University College Cardiff, as it was then, and had a great year. I, I really did not enjoy being an undergraduate, but I loved going to South Wales and, and um, doing this course. Uh, I made sort of like, it felt like real friends for the first time. And I enjoyed it so much that um, I decided to try and stay there. So I got a job in Newport, just 12 miles away. Lovely. And lived in Newport, lived in Gwent anyway, for three years, all on the same paper. I spent nine of those years in Evervale, which uh, at that time, it was still mining and still steelworks. 
but obviously, uh, you know, those were both in decline. Yes. I mean, I'd always had this mad crush on Wales. I don't know why, but ever since I was a child, it's the one kind of Celt that I'm not. <laughs> is Welsh. Um, and I just always, I was just fascinated by it. I was fascinated by the accent and I always thought how incredibly cool it was. And I went there and it really was every bit as good as I thought it would be. I found the people tremendously friendly. I never encountered any anti-English feeling. I encountered it all the time when I was an undergraduate in Scotland, but never when I was a postgrad in Wales. And it's, it's an unexpectedly attractive part of the world. People talk about the landscape of North Wales. I don't know North Wales very well. It was much greener than I expected. I think partly there was a lot of sort of waste ground that was not being mined anymore. And it was kind of going back to nature. Mm. So you had this kind of pale green fuzz over, over everything that was sort of, you know, really spring-like. And there's something about the light in South Wales. It's sort of softer than in England. And I think it may well, uh, sounds bizarre, I think it literally may well be because of all the coal dust in the air. (laughs) But um, there's a word, there's a a Welsh word, glass, G-L-A-S, and it's a colour, and it means sort of green, but it's a kind of greyish green with a little bit of blue, sort of a little bit like seawater. And you start realising it's that's kind of the colour that so much of South Wales is. You know, you're sort of looking at everything through this kind of sort of soft veil. Mm. And it may well be cold dust, but it's pretty. Everything about South Wales. And, and Cardiff is actually a really lovely city. I really like the big white and gold buildings that they have. There's a, a, a row of them. That's, uh, one of them's the civic centre, one of them's the law courts, one of them is something else, Mm. I forget, but um, really are rather lovely. And you've got that massive Butte Park stroke Poncana Fields in the middle. It's one of those cities with a huge green lung in the middle. Yes. Manchester, where I've lived since the mid-80s, noticeably doesn't have that. It has green space, but not in the middle. No. And Cardiff does have it right in the middle. Mm. And Newport has got this very distinctively shaped uh, civic centre that you can pick out from sort of virtually everywhere. Oh, I don't know Newport very well. Newport is famous for various things. Chartist riots. There's a hotel called the Westgate Hotel. And it has sort of giant columns at the side of the front doors. And if you know where to look or feel, you can actually find bullet holes in the columns from where there was a Chartist riot. (laughs) It's quite an old city. The patron saint of the city is St. Woolos. And St. Woolos was um, quite distinctive in being a nudist saint. (laughs) <laughs> There's a St. Woolos Cathedral, which is at the top of Stowe Hill, which is apparently where he lived. He and his wife, St. Gladys, um, used to... <laughs> I'm not making this up. They used to walk down Stowe Hill in the nude and uh, go for a swim in the Usk, which is probably just as muddy as it is now. And then they'd walk back up the hill, still nude, a bit muddier. Um, and um, yet yeah, this, is, this is what they did. It was very holy and saintly of them. <laughs> I really can't quite work out what then qualifies you as a saint after that. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but that's often the case, isn't it, with saints, I think? Yes. It, well, it so often is, yes. Yes. Um, but I, I found that the South Wales Argus, where I worked, just sort of taught me so much about being a journalist. I mean, it was, it was always known as a great trading, trading, training paper. Lots of people went from the Cardiff course to the Argus, and it was a very prestigious first job to go to. Mm. So uh, I stayed there for years. It's a great thing about 
well, the Celts in general, I think, but particularly the Welsh and the Irish. Well, I'm sure it's true of the Scots as well, but uh, we won't go into that with their enormous chip on the shoulder. <laughs> there we are, I've said it. I've said it in public. Tell me about it. I was brought up around it. You did mention at one time being a radioactive fan. Oh, yeah, yeah. And one of my favourite lines from that show is, he didn't quite have a chip on his shoulder, more a great deep fat fryer. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I digress. But the great thing about the Celts is their love of language. Yeah. And their use of it, the use of language. It's so powerful, I think. So that's a great place to learn to be a journalist. Yeah, it is. Yeah, one just learned, certainly at Cardiff, you learned how to use language very economically, how to write headlines. uh, And you were given a certain count and you knew how to work out the letters and you couldn't go over that. So you had to figure out how to do it in, in that size. Mm. So really very good discipline for language use. So how do you go from being a journalist to being a quizzer? Well, I was a journalist for about 10 years. And uh, I I think I was quite good at sort of going and meeting people and interviewing them and, and writing stories. What I worked out I didn't like was being edited. I didn't like that other people would then come along and rewrite it. And I think, no, you don't understand why I did it that way, do you? And it gradually dawned on me that I would prefer to be the one doing the editing. So I discovered that uh, it was possible to make a living editing books. Ah. My grandfather had actually been an editor, but he was more what they now call a desk editor. He worked directly with the authors. What I did was read the manuscripts and uh, check consistency and spelling, punctuation and grammar and facts where I happened to know that the fact was wrong mm. uh, and check that a word spelt one way was spelt the same way 264 pages later. And I learned to do that. I found I preferred working on proofs than on manuscript. But I did that for about 20 years. So I read an enormous number of books, mostly academic books, mm. and um, got into the habit of, of being able to spot when there was something wrong that didn't make sense. Yes. And without realising it, you know, probably picked up an enormous amount of knowledge doing that. Absolutely. To notice the mistake later on, you would have to retain the fact. Well, actually, you learn um, to keep what's called a style sheet and jot things down so that you know where you found it and, and you can go and check. Mm. My wife's going through that process at the moment. She's checking questions for a, a, for a show like yours, I suppose, oh. an afternoon quiz show. Uh, and mm. she's going through and checking the questions that have been set by question setters. But um, There's yes. always a danger of, of ambiguous questions. I mean, a classic example of an ambiguous question is, Neil Armstrong was the first man on the moon, which he was, who was the last man on the moon? And the thing is, there are actually two different answers to that question. Mm. Well... 12 men walked on the moon. So when Gene Cernan gets out and is the 11th man walking on the moon, there is still one more. There's the 12th man, which is Harrison Schmidt. So Harrison Schmidt is the 12th man to set foot on the moon. But then when it's time to go home, Harrison Schmidt steps into the capsule, leaving Gene Cernan behind. He is Being the commander, he's got to be the last man there. And then he steps off the surface of the moon and into the capsule. So he is the last person to leave the moon. Mm -hmm. So which of them was the last man on the moon? Uh, One of them was the 12th man to set foot on the moon. And the other one was the last to leave it. Yeah, quite. Hmm. Oh, how interesting. (laughs) I mean, obviously, we don't have much to do with the question setters or the question verifiers. We have to know who they are so that we can avoid them. 
we're not allowed to be on a team with a question setter. Right. Um, I mean, there are question setters I don't have conversations with except in public at quiz events where everyone can see that we are discussing entirely innocent things. Mm. Otherwise, you know, I'm, I, I'm not friends with them on Facebook. You know, we don't have private conversations. Uh, and we have these uh, adjudicators who are, obviously they're employed by ITV, but their job is to be completely independent mm. and give their independent opinion about whether they think an answer is acceptable or not. Mm. And again, you know, I know who they are. I don't sort of mix with them much. Yes. So, in fact, the chase really is a small part of your world, isn't it? It's become quite a large part <laughs> of my world. Uh, in fact, the chase was uh, the third item I wanted to put in the time capsule. How perfect. Then we should put you being a journalist in Wales. South Wales generally. Um, and the whole of South Wales. I'm going to creep a bit of Pembrokeshire into it. Uh, yeah, that's fine. I don't know West Wales very well. But um, I'm oh, told it's, it's nice. It's worth a visit, so I would definitely yes, put that I'm in. Told. Right, we should put the whole of South Wales into your time capsule and move on mm. to your next item, which is. Okay, having discovered how much she hates this, I'm sorry to say I have to interrupt Anne for a minute so we can have the traditional ad break you get on all podcasts. My apologies, Anne. We'll be back as quickly as we can. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Right, let's quickly get back to Anne Hegarty and the rest of the things she'd like to put in her time capsule. Which is, in fact, the chase, because it's just been so absolutely huge for me. It's, it's just completely changed my life. So, you know, I think I can't really leave it out. No. How did you get on to it? I had been on Mastermind uh, in the late 80s. And ever since then, I've been a member of, uh, there's this sort of social group you can join called the Mastermind Club. And I've been a member of that, but I didn't really know much about sort of proper quizzing. And then I happened to meet someone via the Mastermind Club who told me what I didn't know was that there was a high level sort of quizzing circuit in the UK. Um, And uh, she gave me some website details. I went and looked on the website And I realized that they had big quizzes once a month somewhere in the Midlands. 
with about 100 people going along and, and doing a written paper. And I, I realized that there was one coming up in a, a couple of weeks and it was in Liverpool and I was in Manchester. So I was like, oh, well, I could go to that. So um, I registered on the website and said, you know, I'd like to come along. And I went along. Um, and I remember sitting down, opening the paper and thinking, oh, my goodness, I am so far out of my league. These are really <laughs> tough questions. But I, I just sort of calmed down and thought, OK, don't panic. They were quite long questions. And you realise that the questions contained sort of little clues. There were little things in there that you could use to help you get to the, if not the right answer, then, you know, quite a decent answer. Mm. And I did OK on that. And at that particular one, um, there was a, a, a crew from the BBC who were auditioning for the second series of Are You an Egghead? Which was to find another egghead. Yes. So um, I, I did the audition. Um, within a couple of days, they were ringing me saying, yes, we want you on there. I think they desperately wanted women to be on the show. So they were like, right, we're recording in 10 days. So I thought I had better start learning the things that, uh, that quizzes know because I don't really know what sort of things quizzes know. So sort of, you know, hastily brushed up things like who'd won Wimbledon and, and who was the England captain of whatever, and went along, and uh, it was a knockout competition. And I actually got to the semi-finals and very nearly made the final. Wow. Which amazed me, because I really didn't have much, much um, hope for my chances. And ended up getting beaten by uh, a bloke called David Edwards, who is now on Round Britain Quiz. Right. So I thought, oh, well, that's it. I got knocked out in the semifinals and, you know, no one is ever going to have heard of me again. But uh, what I didn't realise was that the, um, the quizzing circuit was kind of keeping tabs on what was happening. And even though it didn't get broadcast till November, the people who ran the quizzing circuit was aware, you know, wow, where has this woman come from? Yeah. And then a few weeks after that was the... World Championships also run by this quizzing circuit. And I went along to the British end and took part. And later that afternoon, when they'd added up all the scores, I realised that I was the top scoring woman in Britain and the second top scoring woman in the world. Wow. That was a surprise. But um, after we'd finished the quiz, it was lunchtime and I stepped into the bar. And I remember being greeted from just inside the bar by what I've since described as the largest man I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> uh, he was sitting on a chair just inside the bar and he said, hi, my name's Mark Labette. You beat me last month. Who are you? So um, I told him and I told him about, um, are you an egghead? And we chatted a bit and he said, I've just finished filming the pilot series of this um, little game show called The Chase and, and you should watch it because it's going to be on in a couple of weeks. and I think it's really good. And the idea was they were going to do two weeks of The Chase and two weeks of an Austin Healy show called The Fuse. And then they'd decide if they wanted to pick up one or both or neither for a full run. So it was just 10 episodes. And it was just Mark and Sean. They'd been looking for a woman chaser and they hadn't been able to find one. So they'd just gone Mark and Sean. And I watched it and I just remember thinking, you know, hey, wouldn't it be cool to be a chaser? And I didn't think, right, I am going to go after this job. I just thought, yeah, it'd be cool. Let's just kind of fantasize about that and then get back to the proofreading. Yeah. Um, and then a few weeks later, there was yet another of these quizzes. And this is only two months after I'd been to the first one. And at lunch, the woman who runs the circuit said, did you watch that series, The Chase? And I said, yeah. She said, what do you think about being a chaser? And I went, oh, uh, yeah, that, 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 that'll be good. 
Um, so she said, well, look, let's wait and see if it gets picked up. And if it does, I'll put your name forward. So I kind of kept an eye on the broadcasting news. And then in, I think, September, it was announced it had been picked up. I um, emailed them, basically. Uh, and the producer says when the email came across her desk, she was like, can this person be that good? So um, they asked me to come over. I think I did about four auditions. Um, they weren't sure what they wanted. If they wanted, if they didn't want anyone else, or if they wanted a woman, or if they wanted more than one, or what. Mm. But eventually, out of the four, they decided to just go with me. Because there is an element of acting involved in it. Well, yes. Particularly to begin with, when you first started, you had to present that sort of sense of disdain. I don't care. I don't care about you at all. I just know everything and I'm going to intimidate you. Essentially, yes. I mean, when um, Jane, the woman who runs the circuit, said, uh, what do you think about being a chaser? I said, I could be good at being intimidating. And she said, oh, I was thinking more of your ability at at, um, actual quizzing. And I was sort of thinking, yes, but I've watched it. And it's quite obvious that Mark in particular is putting on an act and being scary. So clearly that's what you've got to do. Mm. And that was what I set out to do, essentially. Yes, I like the fact that over time, that's sort of broken down, really. Everybody knows that it's an act. And so, in fact, you can say things like, well done, bad luck. Yes, I I think one thing I thought, everyone I knew who'd been on The Weakest Link, because I do know a lot of quizzers, said, uh, you know, you always say to them, well, were you encouraged to let Anne Robinson have it back? And they were like, no, we were not. And I thought, you know, our contestants, they should be encouraged to let us have it back. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to be rude to them from this position of power, six feet up in the air, then actually, yes, they should be allowed to come and, you know, nip my ankles a bit. So, you know, I've always rather liked it when they have a comeback. Yes. And I think that's important. I don't want to be a bully. No, that doesn't happen. I think that's rather nice. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if it ever did, then that's what Bradley's there for, to completely burst your bubble. Absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the fact that, you know, we're up there being pompous and, and Brad is down there being every man. Yeah. And sort of point, and he gets to sort of point and laugh when we get it wrong, which we do not that rarely, to be honest. No, I'm sure. Who can know everything? I think that idea of you saying, "Well, I'd better learn what quizzes know," is extraordinary yeah. because anybody else saying, "Well, how the hell can I learn everything?" I always used to think, you know, quizzes know everything, and there's no such thing as the quiz knowledge canon. And in fact, there is. There is a book, for example, by a bloke called Trevor Montague mm-hmm. called "The A to Z of Nearly Everything." And he's done so many updates of it. And virtually every quizzer has got the most up-to-date version of that on their shelves and probably various not-so-up-to-date versions. Mm. It's just full of really useful quiz knowledge, like people who are related to who, lists of kings and queens and presidents, all the capitals of the world, all those kind of lists that Mm. you need. Chemical elements is always one, isn't it? Oh, I do try. I really do try with those. (laughs) I'm I'm a lot better at the periodic table than I was. But, you know, there are people, I mean, my colleague Paul Sinner, I think he just knows the the periodic table completely. Mm. Um, No, well, you're about to have an area that isn't... Sorry, I interrupted you. What were you saying? No, 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 nothing. And also, I noted very early on that you said to me, you don't like interruptions, so I apologise for doing it. (laughs) No, no, no. It's more just, you know, if I'm if I'm really focusing on something and then someone suddenly phones and says, kindly switch your attention to something else. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree with you. It is annoying if you're in the middle of something and somebody jumps in on top of you. So mm-hmm. I apologise. Uh, no, 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 no. Yeah, We're going to be apologising to each other for the next five minutes, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I think The Chase is a, an extraordinary programme. I feel it works so well, A, because it's just such a good format, and B, because of Bradley. I mean, I can't imagine who else could do it. I know he, he managed to start a hair a few days ago by talking about maybe retiring in a couple of years. I mean, I think this was this was Brad just talking off the cuff. Yeah. I don't think he has any plans to retire. I think he just meant, you know, obviously I can't go on forever, but who knows, you know, when I might not be able to go on till. Yes. According to Twitter recently, he hadn't gone on forever. There was a great thing on Twitter where suddenly they said he was dead. I'm trying to think if I saw that. I've seen rumours that I'm dead. Um, <laughs> well, I think what happened was um, there was a, a horse, I imagine it was a Scottish horse, that was called the Governess, G-O-V-A-N-E-S-S. Mm. And I don't know if it was named after me or not, but anyway, uh, it died or it was put down or something. And um, somebody posted on Twitter, R-I-P, the Governess, you know, spelt like the horse. Yes. And some people got the idea it was me. And, and no, it's really, it's not me, it's a horse. <laughs> <laughs> Difficult to accept that you might be put down. Um, <laughs> probably broke its leg or something. Yes, so go carefully. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we will definitely put the chase in. I think it has to mean that it carries on for everyone else, but it's there for you whenever you want it. Yes. So one yeah. day, as with all things, when it's past and gone, you could look back at all those lovely times. Well, I always think, you know, this is absolutely the biggest thing I'm ever going to be involved with. I mean, it's not, it's not going to get bigger than this. So, you know, just enjoy it while it lasts. Mm, absolutely. I think with all things. Mm, mm. Okay, lovely. That's three items. Mm. We've got your school, we've got South Wales, and we've got the chase. So what's next? Uh, my fourth item, uh, this is a bit woolly, but um, I'm sure you can find some way of compressing it in there, in a small room or something. Uh, peace and quiet, basically. <laughs> I, I, I can't get enough of it. I love silence. I love, as I say, not being interrupted. I love being able to lie in bed and sleep without a motorbike going past the bedroom window. I don't even know who it is, but every single night... I do apologise. <laughs> <laughs> so that would explain how pleased you were when suddenly we were all told to lock down and stay in our houses. Yeah, it was brilliant. <laughs> it was fantastic. Everything just went so quiet. The phone stopped ringing that suddenly, you know, I wasn't getting like 15 emails a day asking me to do something. And, uh, oh, it was just... The, the peace and quiet was just unbelievable. Mm. Just silence, stillness and solitude are just three things so important to me. I remember when we were first going into the jungle and I remember Nick Knowles saying the two biggest problems are going to be hunger and boredom. And I was like, hunger? Yeah, I think so. But boredom, I don't tend to get bored. And I found that I was perfectly happy just simply lying on my, as long as I didn't have to get out of my bunk bed, which was, <laughs> I was perfectly happy just simply lying <laughs> on the bed, staring into the treetops, mm. just sort of, you know, wool gathering. I'm very, very good at just sitting in a room doing nothing or just sitting in a room with the internet, mm. which to me is not doing nothing. The SAS Montaigne, was it, said uh, all of man's ills are caused by the fact that he can't sit quietly in a room by himself. <laughs> I can sit quietly in a room by myself. So, you know, whatever the problem is, I'm not the problem. no. Things can't be too quiet for me because I've always got something to do. I can always find something to fill it with. Mm. And I can always do with, you know, 
fewer messages and, and just less hearing from people. <laughs> yes, and that doesn't necessarily involve having to have a book to read or something to look at. You're happy in your own head, are you? Basically, yes. Well, I, I like to have something to read. Um, I tend to use the internet for that an enormous amount. Mm. You know, I, I probably seem to spend an awful lot of time on social media, but a lot of the time when I'm on Twitter, I'm actually reading an essay in a magazine that somebody has tweeted and I've clicked on it. Oh, this is interesting. Mm. You know, and, and that's another half hour gone. And then at the end of it, you know, I've learned something. I mean, it's great being on the chase because you can always say, I am busy studying. I am learning things. <laughs> Whatever you're doing. And if you have a quizzer's mind, you think, oh, you know, let me find out about that because that will come up. Yes. You can spot a quizzer's mind because I have friends who are very good at quizzing and who are interested in quizzing. And therefore, whenever you go somewhere with them, I have one friend who has a little notebook. He'll go, oh, look at that. <clears throat> so just going walking around a church or something, you'll see something interesting and he just notes it down in his book. Well, I try and remember things like there was um, – I can't remember if she's dead or just very old, but there's a, a Japanese artist uh, who specializes in polka dots. And it's taken me ages to remember her name. I think I can remember that she's Yayoi Kusama, but it keeps coming up in quizzes and I forget it. Uh-huh. Eventually it will come up and I will remember it and it will be in a final chase. Yes. That's what you want. You learn a fact and you keep being asked it and you're like, oh, I can't remember this. Mm-hmm. And then you're told it and eventually it sticks and it sticks when you need it to in a final chase. Yes. And for me, just one fact in my life. Mine is the uh, the shifting of the N from an into a, the nape. So it was a napron. And like the Arabic for that fruit was naranj. Yes. And we used to talk about a naranj and now it's an orange. Yes. So the N shifted. Yeah. And I think really that's just because when I first heard it, I went, oh, that's really interesting. Mm. And it stuck. Mm. Maybe I'm not interested enough. Well, I think a quizzer, I think quizzers are curious. I think they're like, what's that? Where's that from? Why is that? In fact, it's that inquisitiveness that most children have. The thing that annoys people is children are constantly saying, why? Why? Mm -mm -mm. And that becomes impossible to answer eventually. You go, Mm -hmm. because it is. I quite like the company of children. Mm -hmm. And I quite like, you know, listening to their questions and answering them. Because children tend to ask quite good questions. Yes, quite incisive, often. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, when are you going to shut up, Granddad? I get that a lot. Well, I love your gathering of knowledge and I love the way your brain works. And uh, I I like the fact that you're so sort of relaxed about it. I like the fact that you've gone from being this child who really was sort of starting to shut down because you saw the world a certain way Mm -hmm. to somebody now who's completely happy in who you are. Yeah. I'm going to put in a room which, when you go into it, is completely quiet. Excellent. Thank you very much. But with very good internet connection. Good, good, good. All right, that's number four. So we've got one item left. This is the one I don't like. Yes, the thing you want to reject from your life. Hmm. Okay. I'm going to put in my grandmother. Oh? Not Gran Hegarty, who was quite nice in a depressed sort of way. Hmm. I want to put in Granny Smith, my mum's mum. Right. Because kind of, we, we sort of set eyes on each other and it was war, basically. <laughs> um, she, I think... One problem is that her mother died when she was a baby. And I think the reverberations of that have affected four generations of our family. I think she was brought up by a series of not very nice housekeepers. Um, I remember my mother telling me this sort of funny jokey story that they had one housekeeper called Alice something. And Alice had a dream one night that a white cat came to her and said, 
lock the children in their bedroom and throw the key out of the window. And as my mother says, that is the reason why all the little Britain girls were late for school the next morning, because apparently she'd actually done that. And it took me until I was in therapy before I actually thought about this story and thought, what must that have felt like for the kids who found themselves locked in and nobody knew where the key was? Mm. And then I suddenly remembered that my grandmother had always had this obsession with locking up little kids. And I thought, that's where that comes from. There was a time when we were visiting my grandparents and I must have been about five and my brother was a baby. And it was about to be time to go home. My mother never learned to drive. Um, so it was always by train. So it was always the grandparents taking us to the station. So she went upstairs to change the baby. I actually don't remember this. This is my mother's version of the story. She says she was upstairs changing the baby. Uh, she suddenly heard this commotion from downstairs, me screaming, both my grandparents shouting, and a banging noise that she couldn't identify. And she thought, right, I cannot possibly leave the baby here. So, you know, let's change the child at breakneck speed, grab the baby, ran downstairs. And apparently what had happened was I was being a bit slow about putting things away. Uh, I mean, to this day, I'm not actually very good at putting things away. I'm never quite sure where people want them put or in what order. And my idea of tidy isn't other people's idea. But um, I was being slow about it. And my grandmother said, right, we're not going to let you go home with uh, your mum and your little brother. They're going to go home and you're going to stay here. And she and my grandfather went out of the room and held the door shut, both hanging onto the handle. And so the banging noise she could hear was, what my mother could hear, was that I was hauling the door hard enough that I was actually getting it slightly open and then it would slam again. Um, I'm quite proud of the strength of that child, I must say. Mm. Um, and uh, this did not stop until my mother came downstairs and said, you know, what on earth are you doing? And, uh, you know, made them leave the door alone. And, and, you know, my daughter is, of course, coming home with me. What are you talking about? And I remember that uh, in our house um, when I was a child, when my grandmother was being shown around it, there was a cupboard under the stairs, which didn't have it had a, a handle on the outside it didn't have one on the on the inside so you could accidentally get shut in it this actually happened to my mother once <laughs> and i had to come downstairs and, and stand on a chair and, and open the door for her um but my grandmother saw this and said oh that'll do to lock Anne in when she's being naughty and my mother sort of went what no i'm not doing that mm. but it was very much the sort of thing i think because of what had happened to her she kind of acted it out on all little girls Uh, And she just simply had this animus against little girls and always against the littlest girl because she was the youngest of her own family. And so the littlest girl always represented her. Mm. And she had three daughters. So, you know, she took it out on mum until Aunt Jill was born. And then she took it out on Aunt Jill. And mum would have been so relieved that she would have bullied Aunt Jill as well. And then Aunt Rachel was born and they all ganged up on her. And then, you know, finally, 20-something years later, I was born uh, and they were everyone ganged up on me. Mm. Aunt Rachel kind of didn't, but I think she was always, she actually did say, I'm so glad that mother picks on Anne because now she doesn't pick on me anymore. They all adopted different ways of dealing with it. My mother's way was to copy her father and just be very, very charming because my grandfather was very good at getting on with all sorts of people. My middle aunt, Jill, um, copied her mother and became another bully. 
Uh, and my youngest aunt, Rachel, just kind of rolled into a ball and hoped people would stop kicking her. Mm. She just developed this very, very passive personality where everything was her fault because uh, it just felt simpler to assume it was all her fault. And of course, as a young autistic child, you would have taken it seriously. You would have heard those things and thought, this is the truth. Yes. But at the same time, I was sort of like, there was a sort of sense at the back of my mind of, I deserve better than this. When we'd go for walks in the countryside uh, and she'd want me to take a shortcut across a railway line, I'd be like, no, not doing that. It's not safe. You can't make me. Mm. And, you know, just sort of slightly valuing my own safety a little bit more than she did. Now, that, of course, would wind her up all the more if, in fact, her own obsession with small young girls doing as they're told came from somebody once making her constantly do as she's told. Yes, yes. And I used to think, you know, well, perhaps it is just me. And when my brother's twins were born, um, uh, boy-girl twins, and I knew that by that time, Granny was really old and senile. And uh, I knew that uh, my brother and his wife had, had taken the children to see her when they were still quite small. And I said, oh, well, you know, at least she won't be doing Rosie any harm. And my sister-in-law said, well, actually, when she can, she gets an arm out from under the blankets and she slaps at Rosie. She didn't know who this child was, but she just coded as small female child. Mm. You know, I may be senile, but at least I know that that's what you do with small female child. Wow. God, that's... um. I have a small sympathy for her because I'm aware that uh, it is possible to to take the sins of the fathers, as it were, and um, the, for them to affect your life. My mother always said she felt that her mother was sort of very thwarted in some way. Mm. And uh, the thing is that her older sisters, they came from a family that was very progressive about women. Her mother who, as I say, died young, but before then she'd campaigned for votes for women. That was where she had met my great-grandfather. And uh, they'd had these three daughters, and it was always important to great-grandfather that his daughters must be educated. And my oldest great-aunt, I'm not sure what she did, she might have been a teacher or something, I'm not sure, but the middle one became a doctor. You know, they went to university. My grandmother went to university. But she only got a third. Uh, but the thing is, I suppose she was sort of frightfully proud of the fact that she went to university at all. But I'm like, she got a third? Really, guys? Um, and she never, she, she met my grandfather at university and she kind of didn't really do anything. She married him. And I, my mother said that she always vaguely wanted to have a sort of literary salon. And, uh, you know, she hoped that grandfather would, would bring his, his authors home. And the thing is that grandfather didn't bring authors home because she'd be rude to them. You know, she'd just say something terribly cutting without even realizing she was doing it. And uh, he just, he actually just kind of didn't want to expose people to her. Mm. So, uh, you know, there was never this opportunity to have a son. And my mother said that um, Granny had shown her some short stories that she'd written. And my mother said they were very well plotted, but they didn't sort of have anything to do with how real human beings behave. And the dialogue didn't sound like, like real human beings. Mm. So it was like something went horribly missing when she was a baby and she just kind of never managed to, to recover it. No. And it's quite possible that her hostility to me probably didn't last longer than childhood. And, you know, we might have been friends in my teens if by that time I hadn't been so traumatised by her mm. that I just thought I don't want anything further to do with her. Mm. How sad. How sad for her life, really, that she constantly pushed away the people that could have become her closest friends mm. by behaving in an appalling way. Yes, really. Mm. 
think it's just about this feeling of, I hope she has a nice life, but I don't want anything to do with her. I just want her to go away. Mm-hmm. Well, she is going to go away because I'm going to lock her deep. And the memory of her, I'm going to lock deep in the time capsule, which means Excellent. she's banished. She's gone. Thank you very much indeed. You can hear a key turn in a door and Good. you're in control of it. <laughs> and a sort of gentle morning side accent saying, excuse me, I think you may have locked this door. <laughs> and me going, I don't care. <laughs> I'm shutting it so I get some peace and quiet. Yes, yes. Oh, Anne, how fascinating and how lovely to talk to you. And thank you so much for thinking about this so carefully. Oh, thank you for asking me. That's your time capsule closed. Excellent. We'll keep it safe. I hope it's quite a nice, comfortable time capsule for her. I just want her far away from me. Yeah, she's she's in there. You get the opportunity to lock her away. Excellent. <laughs> you have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Anne Hegarty. Do remember to subscribe to this podcast and rate us before you go. It's really helpful, so thanks. And maybe you'd like to review the podcast on the Apple Podcast app, if you have the time. In the meantime, you can follow me or my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook for details of who's coming up and what we're doing. Well, not everything we're doing, obviously. We're not idiots. Feel free to get in touch if you have any suggestions for future guests, particularly if they happen to be friends of yours and you know how to actually get in touch with them. You see, it's not as easy as it seems, so uh, any help is greatly appreciated. However, tweeting, why don't you get the Queen on, is not much use. Unless, of course, you happen to be Prince William. Thank you to Pass the Peas Music for writing the theme tune to this podcast. You can hear it in full and download it on Spotify so that they get the massive $0.004 each time. Whoa, yes, baby. This was a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Oh, take it easy. Keep well. Be happy. Shower regularly. Wash behind your ears and mind your language. See you soon. Bye. Ciao. Au revoir. Sayonara. Adios. A wiedersehen. Dos vidania. Keep your pecker up. That's it. Stay cool. Oi, watch your back. Steady as she goes. Come on, let the dog see the rabbit. Oi, who are you looking at? You want some? Yeah, coming, coming, all right. My brother's bigger than your brother. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.